Good morning, everyone. I am just double checking to make sure that my timer is working. There it is. I do know that I owe you a couple minutes from last week, so we'll make up for that. Um, and as we start, I can't promise this is going to be the last Sunday that we're going to mention our picture, but it will be the last Sunday for probably several weeks. And if you remember our little picture, it is cold fingers juggling green reindeer. Cold fingers juggling green reindeer, which represents the gospel message of creation, fall, judgment, the gospel or grace, and a response. And I was um, asked, and we're going to get this taken care of, we're going to make up some little laminated cards that have not only the picture on it, but that fun sentence, uh, cold fingers juggling green reindeer, and I'm also going to have on there creation, fall, judgment, uh, grace, or the gospel, and a response with scripture verses underneath there. So you can put that in your pocket, your uh, pocket, really that's all I got. And at any time you think, oh man, I'm going into the store, I saw someone I know walking in, grab that, look at it, read it, think to yourself, if I have an opportunity, Lord Jesus, please let me remember those five things in a quick cessation so that I might be able to share the gospel. Uh, so, we are at the end of 2 Thessalonians, which means we have been looking at the book of 1 and 2 Thessalonians for about four months now. And we've come to an end, and the two books have been filled with very practical instruction, very practical encouragement, and then the both books have been filled with what's going to happen in the future, answering some of those kind of questions about the end times. And Paul concludes in the last three verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Let me read those three verses and then we'll get into understanding them. He says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters, this is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Paul ends this two-letter encouragement to the church with an amazing statement of goodwill and prayer on our behalf and a pronouncement of blessing on our behalf. He starts out by talking about the Lord of peace. And peace is, I want peace. I want peace in this world. I want peace in our nation. I want peace in our families. I want peace in our own city. It, it feels as if peace is very fleeting. It's not there. People talk about wanting peace, wanting peace, wanting peace, but there's nothing but it feels like anger and strife and war and fighting and riots and arguing. Peace. I remember reading a statistic many, many years ago about world wars, and not just World War I and World War II, but wars in general throughout the history of mankind. And from recorded history, 
it seems as if there were seven years between recorded history and when the study was done like in the 1950s, seven years of time that had gone by in over 5,000 years where there was no war between nations. Just seven years of no war between nations. Now, that didn't mean that there was total peace during that seven years, but only seven years of world peace where there was no nation fighting against nation. Now, in that seven years, there was still division within those nations and civil wars, but I'm talking about peace between nations. I'd love for our world to experience the peace that Paul is talking about. Can God do that? Absolutely. He has all the might and ability and wisdom to accomplish it. But instead of asking for world peace, let's ask for peace in our own hearts first. Let's accomplish that. Peace in our own hearts, and then peace among people that we have contact with. Family, friends, neighbors, people that we associate with from time to time, relatives. Let's start there. Because if we can if we can experience and promote that peace between ourselves and God and then let that spill over into our immediate relationships, who knows the extent in which that can spread in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our state, our nation, and our world? So instead of asking for world peace, let's ask for an understanding of what peace is for ourselves. And that's exactly what Paul does. He starts out in that verse 16 of chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, and he tells us a little bit about peace. He tells us, now may the Lord of peace, okay? We know that in Isaiah, Jesus Christ is called the Prince of Peace. And peace was a message that he continually preached. Not peace for the sake of, hey, let's all make sure we get along, but peace and as we'll see in some scripture verses later, peace that establishes a relationship with God first and foremost and with ourselves secondly. Not this idea of world peace, but this idea of peace between us and God and between ourselves as believers first and foremost. But notice that he is the Lord of peace, meaning he is the master of peace. He's the master of peace. So when it comes to peace, God, Jesus Christ, knows exactly what he's talking about. He's master of it. He's Lord of it. He's sovereign over it. He's established his authority when it comes to what peace is and how peace comes about. The very next few words are life-changing. Paul says, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace. May the master of this elusive idea of peace, may he himself give it to you. Do you know what that is telling us right away? Peace between you and God, first and foremost, is not up to you. Peace between one another is not up to you. Who is the master of peace? Who is the sovereign of peace, the Lord of peace? 
Jesus Christ is. So he himself is going to give this to you. It is not something you work up. It is not something that you stress about. It is not something that you toil for. The Lord of peace, the master and sovereign of peace, may he himself give you peace. And immediately when you realize that this peace that Paul is talking about, that Jesus Christ is master and Lord over, is not dependent upon you, all of a sudden you just have that sigh of relief and go, whew, because I can't do it. Because I have angry feelings towards others. Others have angry feeling towards me. We have regret. We have conflict between us. I can't establish peace when I'm already at war with myself, with my own heart of what I want to do and what God wants me to do. It's okay, because the master of peace, the Lord of peace, the sovereign of peace, he himself will give it to us. How many times have you tried to stop an argument from happening? How many times have you tried to stop an argument in your own life? Sometimes it may work, but what I have found, even if I remain silent, that's the wrong approach. Even if I defend myself, that's the wrong approach. Even if I have logical answers, sometimes that's wrong. Sometimes if I appeal to emotion, that's wrong. And it's a no-win situation sometimes. Well, that's because I'm trying to make peace instead of letting the Lord and Master and Sovereign of Peace Himself give it to us. See, I'm looking for it. I'm striving for it. I want it. I want it to end. I want there to be peace and harmony. And God says, but I'm the master of it. I'm Lord of it. I'm the sovereign of it. Are you looking to me for peace? Or are you looking for peace through making your point and establishing that you're right and making the other person submit? No. God says, you're not the master of peace. You're not the sovereign and Lord of peace. I am. And I give it. Look to me to give it. Which means immediately I have to surrender the title I'm in charge of peace. And I have to surrender it to God and say, God, I'm not the establisher of peace. You are. And once you do that, this marvelous little Christian character begins to grow inside of your heart called humility. And it's no longer about being right. It's no longer about being first and best and establish your dominance in order to force peace, it's a matter of submitting. And when two people, two warring parties, submit to the Master and Lord of peace, peace happens. Peace happens. When both warring parties submit humbly before the Master of peace and say, Lord, what do you want? out of this relationship, out of this conversation, out of this conflict, what do you want to establish? What do you want to change in me? Don't start the prayer with, what do you want to change in them and how can I tell them that? No, 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 no. That continues war. Let God be the master, not only of peace, but of the conscience of others. 
But when you too, or more parties, submit willingly and say, Lord, you are the master of peace, help us. Give us peace. Give us a stop of war of words. Give us a stopping of anger and frustration and antagonism and establish peace. If you're looking for peace in a relationship, if the world is looking for peace in the UN, it's going to miss it every single time. If the world is looking for peace in legislation, it's not going to happen. If the world is looking for peace in law, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's only going to happen when the warring parties go before the master of peace and say, help. And he says, he gives you peace. And he further defines that in 2 Thessalonians 3.16 by telling us when this can happen. This peace, he himself will give you peace at all times and in every way. Wow. You mean if I go to the Lord and say, Lord, let there be peace in my heart, let there be peace between me and a spouse, me and kids, kids and parents, parents and, and their friends, and if you want to establish peace at all times and in every way, you are the only one that can accomplish that. And he can. He is sovereign and Lord and Master. And when we submit to him, it doesn't matter what you are going through. You can have peace of mind. You can have peace between warring parties. But he's the key. He's the key. I'm not the key. Words are not the key. Logic is not the key. Emotion is not the key. Arguments are not the key. Power is not the key. Threat is not the key. The key is Jesus. Jesus. And I know that that sounds like one of those sappy, simple answers. What's the solution for world peace? Jesus. And if it sounds sappy, therefore it is. Let it be. It doesn't matter how it sounds because we are founded on truth. Paul's already established what he writes is truth. It has authority behind it. It's God's living word. And at all times and in every place, I can have that peace. In Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, the prophet Isaiah says, You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Look at that relationship again of trust. That's like looking to Jesus, the Master and Lord of peace, saying, you give me peace. There's a trust there. There's a surrender there. There's a humility there. When I say, Lord, I trust you, if I remain silent and I trust you to establish the peace, you're going to do it. And he says he will keep you in perfect peace. Peace. Have you ever felt perfect peace? I mean, perfect peace. I mean, you've. I mean, right now, I think we're all peaceful. Okay, we we have a peacefulness about us. But have you ever experienced perfect peace? A peace that is just so overwhelming. You look at the world and you read the news and you don't get frustrated. A perfect peace. I think we've all experienced that at times, where we've had just these amazing moments of trust and confidence in God to take care of whatever we're facing. Those are moments of perfect peace. 
But God says, you can have it all the time. It's not a wish and a pie in the sky. It's not for super Christians. It's for Christians. People just like us. This perfect peace. And he says, I'll keep you in that perfect peace, those whose minds are steadfast. And that means we do have a sort of a role here. Our steadfastness of mind has to be what? What does steadfast in mind mean? What does it mean? I'm not asking for a question, or I'm not looking for an answer. I'm just, I want you to think about that for a second. What does it mean to be steadfast in mind? It means this. It means that my thoughts and my attention, all those daydreams and all those purposeful thoughts, are uncompromisingly fixed on Jesus. What that looks like practically is that when I am faced with something, I don't run in terror from it, I don't hide from it, and I don't fight it with my own strength and ability. I immediately surrender and say, Lord, help me through this. You are the one who will guide me and lead me into all of this. Lead me and guide me. Again, it connects right back exactly to that idea and that Christian character of humility. Father, I can't do this. You need to do this. You need to accomplish this. You need to change my heart. You need to change their heart. You need to establish peace. You need to stop the fighting. You need to stop the anger. You need to stop the resentment. You need to, Father. And in any part that I can play, Call me to it, and I will faithfully surrender and do it. Steadfast in mind, an uncompromising conviction and thought throughout the entire day that I walk with the power and ability and peace of Christ. It's not me. It's Him. That's the steadfast in mind, and that does nothing but establish trust. In John chapter 14, Jesus says to his disciples, to us, peace I leave with you. Now this is right on the, the forefront of him going into the Passion Week where he surrenders his life on our behalf to the Romans and then crucified, dies, buried in resurrection. He tells his people, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Again, just what Paul said. He's the Lord of peace who himself gives you peace. So Jesus, Paul didn't make that up. Paul gets it directly from Jesus. Jesus says he gives peace. You want peace? you got to go to Jesus. There is no other way to have peace than through the work and person of Jesus Christ. Any other type of peace that you try to establish is not lasting, perfect peace. It may stop the warring, but it doesn't establish peace. He says, I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Wow, he makes it very clear. The world gives a peace. They can stop war. They can stop fighting. They can stop frustration. And they have to use power and threats to do it. Very few times does it just work holding up a flower saying, okay, let's all get along, please. They tried that back in the 60s or 70s, and I don't know if that really established peace. 
Only Christ does. The world may offer suggestions. Oh, this is how you establish peace. But if it's not through the person and work of Jesus Christ, it's not perfect peace. It's not lasting peace. It's very different. It's just the ending of hostilities for a moment. But God does far more with the peace that Jesus offers than stopping hostility for the moment. In uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and this, this text is a little bit longer than I could uh, print up here, so I'll give you a second to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. You can turn there the old-fashioned way through paper, or you can just flip to it, or swipe to it, or wherever. I'll give you a second. Because this is a very important passage on peace, and I want to make sure that we're all on the same page here because Paul talks a lot about how peace is established and how it is different than the world's peace in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. We're going to read a couple verses here. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 14. Paul starts out by saying, For he himself is our peace. Now he's talking about Jesus in the verses in front of it, being reconciled to God. But Paul says, For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace. And now he starts to define what that means. Who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Now, I didn't want to read the whole of chapter 2 because it's basically, chapter 1 is basically one verse, one sentence, and chapter 2 is basically one sentence in the Greek. It's way too long to read without verse separations in order to get the idea. So the sentences are two massive sentences in the first and second chapters of, uh, of Ephesians. Previously in chapter 2, Paul talks about how he established peace between us and God and how now Jesus establishes peace between Israel and the rest of the church, between Jews and Gentiles. There's no longer a separation between them. And Paul says, this dividing wall between Greek and Jew, and in our mind, it's hard to understand how divisive that division was in Paul's time between the Jew and the Gentile. The best way I can relate to that division is growing up, especially in the 70s and 80s, I remember that America had one enemy. Remember who that enemy was? The Soviet Union. And there was, I mean, everything, all, all the best movies were us against the Soviets. And uh, <laughs> except for Hunt for Red October, but that was awesome. Yeah, that was kind of, okay, back on target. So there may be to the present day, I don't know what it is, maybe, maybe Austin terrorists might be the divide. I think there's a huge divide racially between different ethnic groups that is just pumped by the media, and, and you see this division that is strong and terrifying, and if you end up at the wrong place at the wrong time during the day, who knows what's going to happen? There's real fear there. And so you see that division, and Jesus says that type of division that was between the Greek and the, and the Jew, or the Gentile and the Jew, was just as vicious. They would not allow you into their synagogues. 
One, if you were a woman. Two, if you were a Gentile. Even if you had converted to Judaism, they would not allow you in. They would not teach you Hebrew if you were a Gentile and you became Jewish. They wouldn't even teach you Hebrew so you could read the Scriptures for yourselves. It was a very divided type of relationship that Judaism presented to the world. On one side, it presented holiness, separate from God, you know, separate to God, and on the other side, it was not welcoming at all. They kept that division line based on who you were born to. And Paul says, he himself, that is Jesus, who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier. There's no difference now between Jew and Gentile. They're believers. If they are believers in Christ, they are believers. That's how God defines them. He does not define them any longer as Jew and Gentile, as separate. It's been destroyed. That barrier is gone. The dividing wall of hostility is gone. By, uh, and he did this by setting aside in his flesh, that is in Jesus' flesh, the law with his commandments and regulations. What Paul is saying is, in the flesh, Jesus came and lived the law perfectly and got away with it, did away with it. It no longer is the barrier that in the Old Testament it was. He now has opened up the floodgates of God's grace, tore down the temple, tore down the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, and said, come in and enjoy. We all have one faith in one God and in one Savior, Jesus Christ. One Lord, one baptism. That's it. There's no longer two different people of faith, the Jews and the Gentiles. It's now one family. And if God can create one family out of two groups that were diametrically opposed to each other, what can he do today in our culture, in our families, in our own hearts? I think he can establish peace. He goes on and says, uh, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. No longer is there a separation. No longer is there a distinction or difference. God says, I've done away with that. My son came, lived, and died according to the law so that there would no longer be a separation possible because my son has fulfilled it and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Jesus Christ established peace between two warring factions, the Jew and the Gentile, who were so different, not just cultures and language, but their approach to a relationship with God, that he destroyed that difference. He destroyed that distinction. He destroyed that separation through the cross. Not through mediation, not through separating territory, not through reparations, not through any social means whatsoever, not through law and government and power and threat. He did it through the most selfless act of all humanity, giving himself as a sacrifice. Giving himself as a sacrifice. And asking you and I and the Jew and all the warring parties to simply say, I believe.
It's not requiring anything more of you than belief. Back in 2 Thessalonians, and there is so much there to unpack, but back in 2 Thessalonians, the second part of that, verse 16, says, the Lord be with all of you. So he's established. He's the Lord of peace, the master of peace. He gives it. He establishes it. He brings it. And it's at all times and all places, and he's always with you. The Lord is present with you at all times. If you remember back three years ago when we looked at the book of Jonah, Jonah was in the bottom of the ocean in the belly of a fish, and he cried out to God, and was God able to hear him when he was in the belly of the fish at the bottom of the ocean? Was God able to hear him at that moment? Absolutely. Absolutely. In Psalm 139, the entire psalm, but especially verses 7 through 12, we're not going to turn there now, but spend a moment this week. Spend a moment this week and read Psalm 139. If that's the one thing you take away from this message, amen, praise God, hallelujah, I am happy and satisfied. Psalm 139 should reinforce the idea in your heart and your mind that no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, no matter how lonely and isolated you feel you are, no matter how you, no matter what walls or barriers you've erected around yourself, okay, because you've been hurt in the past, so you erect a wall or barrier, God is there to hear you. God is present with you at all times in every place. There is not a moment of your life, there's not a second in your life where God is not present, where God doesn't know intimately what's going on, where you cannot cry out and say, help. He will hear you. He will hear you every single time. Uh, some, of you, some of you may have this in your house. We have a Google Assistant or whatever Google thing, Google Voice, and... Um, I don't know how we ever made it through the moon as a culture or society. Because I can stand right in front of that thing and say, and I can't say it loud in case someone has it on their watch or phone, hey Google, hey Google, and I'm, I like stare at it. And I see the lights blinking that it heard me, but it does nothing. And I'm like, oh my goodness. I'm, I'm, I cannot be any closer, and I'm saying it politely and gently, just in case it gets offended and doesn't want to listen. I have no idea how the thing works, but I do. Hey, Google, hey, Google, hey, Google, hey, Google. And God's not like that. Wonderfully and beautifully, God is not like that. God is constantly, you don't have to say more than, and he knows exactly what you need and what you're thinking. He is beautiful beautiful in being attentive and listening, present in your life all the time. Paul goes on in that same text in, in verse 17 and says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. It's funny how he kind of considers all this kind of like a greeting. Well, it's kind of a couple chapters, but he just kind of comes to the end. Hey, at the end, I'm going to give you a greeting, and I'm going to let you know that I'm writing it with my own hand which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters, this is how I write. Paul had what's called an amanuensis. And an amanuensis is just a fancy Greek and Latin term and idea that says someone was a secretary writing down what he said, dictating. 
And so someone was there where he was, probably at this time he was in Ephesus, writing out the book of 2 Thessalonians, saying what he wanted to say, and someone else was writing it, but when it came to the end, he wanted to make sure that the people who got this letter in Thessaloniki knew exactly this was Paul. It wasn't just someone saying he was Paul, but this comes with the full authority of an apostle appointed by Jesus Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to make it known this is truth. So he makes it very clear, this comes with my authority, and with my authority, I speak on behalf of God. This is God's word. And just in case someone is trying to fake you out, I've written this last part with my own hand, which I do for every letter. So if you get another letter, and it's not this kind of handwriting, it's not for me. Know that it's not for me. Now he's talking about the original letter that he wrote, because obviously we have copies of it, but in those original letters that were then sent to other churches, hey, here's another letter we got from Paul. Why don't you read it? It might be applicable to you, and it is. And it has his signature on it, his hallmark, his stamp of approval, so you know it's his. And then Paul ends with the last statement in verse 18 by saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It is a statement of God's unfailing interest in you. Grace being that undeserved, unmerited love and favor. When do we not need God's grace? We need it all the time. We never outgrow it. We never outlive it. We, grace carries on into eternity for us. Grace is the establishment of a relationship with God. It is how peace is established through the cross. Grace is everywhere in the message of the gospel. It is grace, grace, grace. Not law, obedience, and payment. It is grace, grace, grace. Because you can come to the end of a book like this and go, wow, there's a lot of stuff I need to do. But we have to remind ourselves, while God calls us to mature as Christian believers with all of these things, he never says you do it on your own strength and your own power and your own merit. He always says, remember all this stuff. It's by grace. It's by grace you have been saved and that not even of yourself, the faith, but it's grace. Lastly, and I'll close with this in Philippians chapter 4, something to kind of take home today. Outside of remembering to read Psalm 139, listen to these two verses, starting in verse 6. Talk about peace. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends or surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If you feel that there are situations where you are vulnerable, emotionally, however, in relationships, if you feel that you are vulnerable and weak, the answer to that is not to become stronger and better. The answer to that is to look to the Lord of peace and say, help, help me. Help me, I am poor, I am weak, I am needy, I am insufficient, I feel lost and isolated, help me. 
And I think Paul would add to that, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you forever. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for just the encouraging words that we have seen through First and Second Thessalonians. What a boost it is to our Christian character and our love for you and love for others. And thank you, Father, for establishing peace between us and between one another. Help us, Father, to look to Jesus as the Lord and Master and Establisher of peace. And remind us, Father, that we are never alone. You are always with us. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen.